everybody, and welcome to That's Life, the show where Hurricane Sandy may have been a year ago, but it feels just like yesterday. Good morning, folks, and thanks for listening. I'm Miriam L. Wallach, blogger, writer, and general manager here at the Nahum Siegel Network. You can find me here every Thursday at 10 a.m., right after Charlie and right before Nahum's live lunch. I hope to bring you a little entertainment, a little news, and a little relief that the life you are leading is not nearly as wacky as mine. Coming to you from the home of the Nahum Siegel Network on the beautiful Lower East Side, the weather is holding for the weekend, folks. Good luck to all the runners out there. The New York City Marathon taking place, please God, this Sunday, barring all unforeseen circumstance, which uh, we had last year. So we are looking forward to this year's marathon. I will tell you as a person who, who runs but has never done a marathon, there was uh, a very heavy heart last year for many, many reasons when the marathon was canceled, though it was obviously the right choice and the most prudent thing to do. But nevertheless, it was disappointing for all the runners. So call a kavod to them. I hope you guys have kept up your training and that you are all ready for this Sunday because the weather is optimal. If Miriam, uh, if you're Miriam L. Wallach once a week is just not enough for you, do what Ellen Ratner does, my new friend Ellen Ratner. Friend me on Facebook. Send me an invite on LinkedIn. You can also shoot me an email, Miriam at NahumSiegel.com. I will not respond to you during the show. I'm not being rude. I'm just being honest. I will make sure to get back to you afterwards. Please also follow me on Twitter. Miriam L. Wallach, all one word, and Nachum Siegel Net, all one word. And if you haven't been following Nachum, you can also follow him at Tall Jewish Radio. That is his handle. Um, we have to do our favorite segment, which is the fortune cookie, but I also want to let everybody know it is October 31st, and so you can imagine what tops the list of national holidays. It is Halloween for those people who are celebrating um, and I don't even have to do the craziest commuter segment that I've been doing every every Thursday morning because, well, New York City is filled with crazy commuters here on October 31st. Let's just say I wasn't the only person wearing a wig, but mine was of a natural color. That's the sound you like to hear. That's the fortune cookie. Here's the fortune for the day. Let's go. Thank you again, Judy. Wiseness make Sorry, that's not even English. Wiseness make for oneself an island which no flood can overwhelm. Okay, a little weird that the Sandy reference with the flood. All right, that's bizarre. But it's not even English. Wiseness make for oneself an island which no flood can overwhelm. I can give Confucius a little bit of an out since English is not Confucius's first language, but I'm seriously thinking that somebody needs an editor. Let's go through the national holidays for today. It is Beggar's Night. It is Books for Treats Day. I guess for those people who are trick-or-treating, instead of giving people, uh, giving kids candy, people are encouraging um, others to give out books. Let me just tell you, I've never done trick-or-treating. I've never given anybody candy, but I'm not thinking you're going to be the most popular block, book, uh, most popular house on the block, I should say, if you're going to be giving out books instead of candy. That's just my That's just my gut feeling. It's also National Caramel Apple Day something I would take part in if I wasn't allergic to apples. It's knock-knock joke day. So ha- so uh, shout-out to my dad, because whose dad doesn't like to make knock-knock jokes? It's also National Magic Day, which, as you know, doesn't really exist. It's National UNICEF Day, and as I mentioned before, it is the 31st. So if you would like to make your own commuter joke, or if you've walked through New York City in the last couple of uh, days, even before coming up on the 31st, you will see that there is a new aura in the city. And uh, I had mentioned on Facebook a couple of weeks ago that either it was Comic-Con or it was just a new, another day in New York City because when the comic convention comes up, people definitely get into the spirit of things, making sure that they are dressed up like different comic book heroes and favorites. And the same thing could be true for Halloween. There was a whole bunch of something going on in the subway while I was making way down here. Anyway, we have a full lineup today. There's a lot going on at the Yeshiva University Museum with a new exhibit that was that um, that started this week. The exhibition opening was just Monday night. And uh, without further ado, I'd like to get to my first guest. Dr. Jacob Weiss is the Associate Professor of Art History. He's the co-chair of Department of Fine Arts and Music at Yeshiva University. And he's also the director of the YU Museum, where a new exhibit had its opening this week. Um, featuring a most unbelievable, unbelievable, and it's a door. And I know that some people aren't excited by a door, but you really should be in this case. The name of the exhibit is called Threshold to the Sacred, and it is surra- and it surrounds or revolves around the arc door of the Cairo Ben Ezra Synagogue. Dr. Weiss, how are you? 
I'm very well. Thanks very much. Thanks for joining me on the air. So tell everybody what the significance is. And by the way, for those people who want to look along while we're on the air, you can go to the YU Museum dot org website they have a great feature where you can almost get like a preview of what you're going to see at the exhibit there's a whole tumblr connection um where you get to, there's a breakdown of the door which i thought was such a uh, a forward thinking way of handling any exhibit call vote to you but um that's what i'm looking at as i'm talking to you now so if anybody wants to look on it take a reference you can go to the website there it's very easy to link um, it's very easy to find. So tell us about the door. Well, um, we're, we're calling the exhibition Threshold to the Sacred, and, and uh, really that, that title has uh, two meanings. Uh, one is a more descriptive meaning. This was uh, the arc door that served uh, as the entry point, uh, the point to which you would enter uh, the most sacred part of the Ben Ezra Synagogue, a synagogue uh, that is imbued with uh, a fascinating history in itself. Right. Um, so it was, uh, on the one hand, uh, the threshold, the actual threshold uh, to the Torah scrolls in the synagogue. At the same time, this door, this beautifully decorated door, which has its own remarkable history, faced outward towards the community. Um, and the Ben Ezra synagogue, like many uh, synagogues, and, and I think especially in the case of this uh, vibrant community of Fustat in the medieval period of Old Cairo, um, was a place not just of, uh, of religious culture, of, of prayer, of davening, of one's connection to, uh, uh, to God, but uh, the connection between um, uh, people and man and one's fellow man. And uh, as, as one uh, quote by Shlomo Dov Goitain, uh, one of the great uh, historians of the Geniza, uh, as, as, it's, as it says in this, in this exhibition, uh, this was a place of connecting uh, not just to God but between uh, fellow men. And, and so this is another aspect that the exhibition brings to light, um, is the communal, religious, intellectual life that went on in and around Ben Ezra in Fustat uh, in, in, this, in this broader community. I just want to take, every, take our listeners a step back for a second because you mentioned two things that I just want to make sure are clear. I think we need to explain Geniza as a term and what it means in context of this exhibit, and what was going on in Cairo at the same time, or who was living in Cairo at the same time that this arc was being used. Okay, so um, the uh, Geniza, I think as, as, uh, as many people know, Jewish tradition uh, prohibits the destruction of sacred documents uh, so as to prevent desecrating uh, the written name of God. Um, but in practice... Uh, the tradition to protect these documents really extends to anything copied or printed in Hebrew, uh, so thus, to, you know, many, many things we would consider secular. Um, and when such uh, texts became worn or no longer in use, uh, medieval Jews, uh, following a long uh, ancient tradition, either buried them in a cemetery or stored them in a repository called a Geniza, uh, which comes from uh, a word both meaning burial place and the act of burying. Um, one such repository was in the Ben Ezra Synagogue in Old Cairo. Uh, we call it Fustat. Fustat is the uh, sort of core of what is now medieval Cairo, but it was in itself uh, a metropolis uh, during the medieval period. Mm. Um, now, this uh, repository uh, was uh, uh, documents filtered out from it um, in the 19th century, but um, it wasn't until the end of the 19th century, um, really through the presence there of Solomon Schechter, who came at the end of 1896 and, and uh, brought these uh, hundreds of thousands of documents to light, uh, it became clear that this was a remarkable uh, uh, story, a, a depository. Right. And this, uh, this particular Geniza had uh, manuscripts deposited into it, as it were, for roughly a thousand years, although the core of these documents date between the 10th and the 13th centuries. What a treasure. What and, a treasure. Um, and it has, uh, uh, given this tradition of not just having documents that, that have a sort of a sacred uh, purpose, but also broader documents, it has become the greatest uh, store of knowledge for us about all aspects of medieval life around the Mediterranean, I'd say Jewish and non-Jewish life. So, so that is uh, a story that, that has its own uh, sort of value, but it's also connected to the broader story of the door and to the story of, of the Ben Ezra Synagogue. 
Wow, that is, and, and the story of the the door itself is also interesting. It, it is. Um, there uh, there were a, a number of uh, wood fragments uh, that came out of the uh, Cairo Geniza, and and some were taken uh, by Solomon Schechter himself uh, when he came to New York. Uh, from Cambridge uh, to become uh, the president of the Jewish Theological Seminary. Um, when and where this door um, came, uh, you know, came to America's war is unknown, but we do know, uh, and this is uh, based uh, in part on wonderful research that's been done by a team of conservators at the Walters Art Museum in Baltimore, with which uh, we at Yeshiva University Museum co-own the door, they have been able to determine um, a number of fascinating things. First, that the door can be scientifically dated based right. on uh, a couple of methods, one dendrochronology, another carbon-14 dating, uh, scientifically dated to the 11th century. And this, uh, this overlays uh, quite well with the history of the synagogue. This was a point between roughly 1025 and, and 1040 in the early mid-part of the 11th century when the synagogue was, in fact, being restored and rebuilt. So it's likely that this door dates from that campaign when they were uh, essentially re recreating, making and decorating new furnishings. Um, and the door served as the arc door from that point. And yet it has a beautifully carved uh, design, a kind of central medallion and four corner elements, which are clearly influenced by Islamic art, um, Islamic culture. It's really quite – I don't mean to interrupt you. I'm just looking at the, at the door right now. And it yeah. is so – for lack of a better word, it is perfect. It is just beautiful. Yeah, and and people who will, who 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 hopefully will come to see it in person will will uh, will see even more in person than than you can see uh, you know through through beautiful images. Um, the so that design um, would have been done uh, under the influence of a particular tr tradition within uh, Mamluk and Ottoman, uh, Islamic book design of the 14th and 15th centuries. So the door would have been updated, as it were, uh, probably sometime in the 15th or probably as late as the 16th century. This was, again, overlaid against the history of the right. synagogue when there had been a fire and likely furnishings possibly damaged or were simply being updated according to the new standards of beauty. Um, the team at the Walters further discovered that uh, there were traces of pigments and brass flakes, other decorations, that could only have been added after 1800 based on the quality of these pigments. So you have um, a further sort of stage in uh, the updating and the beautification in um, the way that this door, uh, in its physical history, in the biography of the door, can be overlaid over the dramatic and evolving history of the synagogue and the broader Cairo community. It's also very telling that there are two different quotes, there are two different texts, written texts, on the door itself. The first one being, Pitchuli Sharei Tzedek, which means, open to me the gates of righteousness. And then at the bottom, there is another quote, which I can't make out, but I think there's a good reason I can't make it out. Right. So um, <laughs> it says, uh, the beginning of that passage, open to me the gates of righteousness. Uh, and below, uh, it says, uh, this is the gate of the Lord. Uh, but the name of God, in this case, is, is uh, in uh, a form uh, that is not the most common uh, form one often sees uh, for writing the name of, of God in Hebrew. Right. Uh, and it, it connects to a tradition that is more common in earlier uh, manuscripts one sees uh, between the 9th and the 13th century. So this also um, provides uh, a, an effective way of, of, of generally dating uh, when the inscription would have been conceived, even if it would have wouldn't have been written um, at that uh, at that early point. It's a, a, a the door itself. Um, just looking at it uh, uh, by its merits would just seem like a um, a classic. Not I don't want to say a classic, you know, our own Kodesh door because I, I don't think that that speaks to it. But there's something about the cleanliness and the the, the perfection of the door, despite its its age mm -hmm. that really speaks to the care that was clearly taken to preserve this door by anyone who worshipped it. Yeah, it's such a um, it's such an interesting idea um, that uh, I think there is a, a sense in this door that um, as uh, an object that was uh, 
you know, quite literally the threshold uh, to to the Torah to the Torah scrolls, it was invested with great importance, and as a reflection of that importance, uh, it was it was given great beauty. Um, another of the uh, quotations that we have in the exhibition featured is one by uh, Abraham Maimonides, uh, son of the Rambam, uh, who wrote in uh, the Comprehensive Guide for the Servants of God in the 13th century that uh, the covering on the teva, that is the, the reading stand in, in Sephardi congregations, must be more beautiful and magnificent huh. than the covering on doors of the Hechal, of the Aron HaKodesh, of the Holy Ark. And that the covering on the doors of the Hechal, on the Aron HaKodesh, must be more beautiful than those of the other doors. And I think the sense that uh, at points, uh, you know, as one approaches uh, the uh, Point, you know, point in the synagogue physically, sort of nearing uh, sort of the Torah, uh, this, this, this sacred text, uh, that there is a uh, value placed on beautifying based on its on one's proximity, as it were, to uh, to that object. And I think that that is certainly revealed as as you're describing um, in the the beauty um, of of the door as it was seen uh, at the time when these designs uh, were made. Tell me also about the first time, and I'm, I'm not saying this to be funny, but the first time you actually laid eyes on the door. I know that um, it's a little bit like, like a kid getting the gift that they want on right. Hanukkah. I have to imagine there was, and again, I'm being completely serious, there was almost an element of giddiness in being able to see something not only of this importance but in such perfect condition that it must have been a, a find for a person like you and with your background and your level of expertise, like a dream come true. Yes, it is. Um, it is a remarkable experience. I think, um, as as people uh, you know know from from encountering uh, things firsthand, and and I think you you experience this when you when you get a letter from someone, as rare as that is today, uh, <laughs> someone's handwriting, that it has the effect of um, of of you really do feel a connection. Uh, to that point in time when it was made. And I think that's something that the door, seeing the door uh, for the first time really did bring to life. I saw it um, when I was um, visiting my colleagues at the Walters Art Museum when we were making plans for this exhibition and looking at it uh, very closely with uh, both uh, the curators and, and the conservators there. So people who, um, who, are not, uh, who are not approaching it as a liturgical object within the context of a synagogue, but really as, a, as an object, as a, as a, a wood panel, uh, uh, who, uh, their role really is to protect it. And yet, um, you really do uh, you know, see the, the beauty and the combination with uh, this Hebrew inscription, um, and it does, um, it does really put you in the mind mm. of this remarkable community, nice. which is what, um, really what the goal of this exhibition was, is to reunite it, as it were, with uh, some objects from the synagogue, with other objects from uh, the broader Fustat community, and also with uh, some remarkable treasures from the Geniza. To I was, about to, ask you. I was about to ask you about that. I don't mean to interrupt, but I was going to ask you that when people cross over that threshold and they come into the sacred, which you are displaying at, in, the, in this exhibit, what else are they going to see besides the door? Because obviously the door is both literally and figuratively a porthole or the right. entranceway into mm-hmm. the other things that are being mm-hmm. um, featured during the exhibit. So we, um, we wanted people, uh, first, first off, to get a sense of uh, the uh, wealth and, and uh, vitality of the community of Fustat. Uh, people have to remember this was an Islamic uh, place and and the Jewish community very much immersed in that they were connected to the administrative leaders, uh, the uh, Islamic Caliphate, the Fatimids uh, did have close connections. They often used Jews and Christians to play uh, administrative roles. It was one of their administrative traditions. So we have within this first section uh, a range of beautiful objects. Not necessarily they were not Jewish objects, but may have been owned by uh, wealthy Jewish families or Jewish craftsmen who may have participated in the creation of them. Uh, fragments of a taraz, uh, these are beautiful um, silk um, a linen uh, uh, cloth. Uh, ivory plaques uh, that show courtly scenes that would have been uh, sort of adapted for right. these forms. And lusterware vessels, these are um, earthenware, ceramic vessels that have these decorative glazes. People will see the traditions that were associated with uh, with this very place. There's also a beautiful uh, portland chart, a navigational map made by uh, a Jewish mapmaker, Judah Abenzara, in 1500, 
which shows the network of trade that went on uh, in and around Fustat, around medieval Cairo. There's also a section on trade and travel. Yeah, uh, and we have uh, a couple of uh, uh, of the uh, volumes of Benjamin of Tudela's uh, travels uh, and uh, a, a very interesting account page uh, by one of the Jewish traders who lived in Fustat, uh, a man by the name of Abraham ben Pariah ben Yiju, who, uh, who uh, you can see his writing on this page uh, dates from uh, the 12th century with a list of objects that he brought back with him from India and Yemen on his, on his trade routes. So this is sort of the, um, the outside world, as it were, the outside world outside of the synagogue. And then once one enters into it, as it were, metaphorically, uh, we have um, a range of objects uh, that, that come from uh, the synagogue, in particular six wood panels. These were inscribed wood panels, uh, most of them done between the 11th and the 13th century. They are essentially donor panels, as many people are familiar with uh, from synagogues and <laughs> right. other religious institutions. It started that long ago, people. That's right. Exactly. It's, a long, it's a long tradition. <laughs> um, and uh, you see in, in a beautiful uh, Hebrew uh, carved script, uh, prayers, blessings combined with the names of the individuals, the donors, who uh, were parts of the community, but also hoped for uh, you know, blessings and prayers to be said on behalf, as it were, of of them uh, through these uh, through these donations. Wow! Well, well. um, we have um, also uh, some uh, very key uh, Islamic works, uh, a beautiful uh, 14th century illuminated Quran, and we we uh, display the cover, a leather gold tooled cover, which has the very same design that clearly inspired the design on the Ark door, as well as on a Samaritan uh, Torah case that we have, we've borrowed from the Jewish Museum, uh, which has the very same design, to show the breadth of this influence that it, um, it carried over, not just into this, this Jewish community, but to other Jewish communities as well. Right, and the Quran there is kept closed because the, the, what is being displayed is not the contents, but really the influence of the cover. Exactly. Yes. It's, <laughs> it's, a, it's an issue of the design and, right. and the... Uh, People should not be confused. That's right. Yeah. Um, one thing I wanted to mention, by the way, because our time is almost up, is that I, I really appreciated the collaboration of the, of the numerous different art institutions with which you worked in order to bring, the, bring this exhibit together. And I don't always, I guess in any time there's a project, it doesn't matter what your background is or what your specialty, but getting a bunch of people to really help out, whatever it is, is often challenging, but it really looks like there was a tremendous amount of generosity from the different organizations, the different institutions, I should say, that you worked with. Either Absolutely, and that's been a real joy and made this possible. The, the Walters Art Museum uh, worked uh, closely and collaborated with us, with Yeshiva University Museum, to make this possible. And I'd say uh, a couple of the other key lenders, I'd, I'd just uh, like to acknowledge in particular the Jewish Theological Seminary, which loaned us seven remarkable Geniza treasures, wow. uh, in particular two original uh, fragments by the Rambam, by Moses Maimonides. I saw that that was in there. I could not believe it. That's right, and as well as an original letter by Yehuda Halevi. These right. are remarkable works that, that reveal, I think, that bring to life uh, not just the work of these uh, remarkable individuals, but on the broader intellectual and cultural life uh, of Cairo, a place where uh, the Rambam lived for four decades, where Yehuda Halevi was passing through on his pilgrimage to the Holy Land. So I think it'll be uh, fascinating to people to see these uh, in, in the original, the, the actual handwriting of, of these greats, and, and even some words crossed out. So you can see changes in the Rambam's text and the Mishnah Torah, changes in, in uh, Moreh Nevuchim, the, the Guide for the Perplexed so that one, one can see the, 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 the writer, as it were, um, composing. Um, and, uh, it really they, is a living Torah. That's right. And uh, they've also, we also have uh, from them um, a beautiful children's primer, uh, a groom's dowry, uh, one of the earliest uh, Haggadot uh, that comes from the 10th or the 11th century. Uh, we've also uh, got a number of uh, loans uh, from... Um, the library uh, at the Hebrew uh, at the Herbert D. Katz Center for Advanced Judaic Studies at the University mm -hmm. of Pennsylvania. They've loaned oh, us really? ten original Geniza fragments, which really build on the communal uh, and poet poetic uh, life of the uh, of the Geniza. The uh, conversations they were having through the Geniza with uh, the Goanim, the leaders of of, uh, of uh, Israel outside of uh, of, of Egypt. Uh, and of the communal relationships uh, uh, that were going on. So this is uh, an aspect that 
um, I think will will sort of expand upon um, the perspective one gets uh, on this community. Well, I I appreciate your time. I, I'm reluctant to ask you which piece is your favorite because it is like asking a parent which child is their favorite. I think when it comes to the amount of time you've spent putting this ex- exhibition together, and I personally can appreciate the amount of time it takes to put an exhibition together, the years of work. I'm not always sure that people who go to museums appreciate the the toil and trouble of the uh, of the curator and of the designer and of the person who makes the galleys and of the director and everything else. So I'm I'm reluctant to ask you, and I'm I'm wondering if you'll indulge me. Is it the door? Uh, well, I think the door is is uh, is favorite. a highlight of right. personal and uh, highlight. I, I do think that you know there are other objects uh, that that come to life. Uh, it changes as one goes through. I think the uh, the Abenzara map, uh, the Rambam fragments, mm. the the Levy letter, uh, they. They are um, those those documents, the Geniza documents. I would say, while they may not be the most physically beautiful things, uh, the experience of seeing the handwriting of these, right. uh, you know, these individuals right. from uh, you know seven, eight, uh, nine hundred years uh, past um, is is a remarkably powerful experience, and that that uh, that does not go away. That excitement uh, does not go away. We really are people of the book. We are. Yeshiva University Museum is located inside the Center for Jewish History between 5th and 6th Avenues on 16th Street. You can reach them, 212-294-8330. You can also go to their website, yumuseum.org. Yumuseum is all one word, yumuseum.org. Professor, I thank you so much. I wish you continued Hatzlacha. I hope the exhibit does well, and I hope the exhibit travels, which is always uh, which is always a good sign, if I'm not mistaken. Thank you so much. A pleasure. Take care. Bye-bye. You're listening to That's Life here on the Nahum Siegel Network, and I am thrilled to be joined by my second guest. It's almost like a YU Museum um, who's who on That's Life today. Bonnie Dara Michaels is the collections curator at the Yeshiva University Museum. She did spend some time beforehand at the Jewish Museum on Fifth Avenue. For those people who haven't been there, you should be there the same way you should be at the YU Museum and really taking part in our history through art. And uh, while we finished talking to Dr. Weiss a minute ago about the exhibit. Uh, Bonnie Dara is actually on with us to talk about something else. Hello. Hello. How are you? I am well. How are you? Very well, thank you. Thank you for joining me this morning. Um, the piece that I wanted to discuss with you was the new story that came out. It was an AP report that came out two days ago um, that said that wrote that Dutch museums find 139 likely not- Nazi-looted artworks within their collection. I, I saw some of those articles. You did. And now tell me something. For those people who, um, it's a little bit like Superstorm Sandy, where people think like, oh, the effects haven't continued. There are still numerous museums in Europe that have part of their collection, that included in their collection are looted objects that they're just coming to know about now. It is quite true. I, I, explain to us how that can be, that all of these items are, that that, that People have not done their homework yet. I mean, there everyone was was the was the was the extent of the complicit behavior or the unknown behavior that deep. It wasn't necessarily knowledge and com- complacency or participation in a an attempt to cover up. For a lot of institutions, they went with the initial, they had paperwork, they had bought it from somebody, they had been given this as a gift, and as far as they knew, the trail of provenance was clear Mm. and had not gone through Nazi hands. In some cases, remember, the story was that the families had sold these pieces, sometimes in order to help them get out to raise money. Mm. So it wasn't just that they were stolen, that they were actually used almost as barter it's possible it's also possible as they have discovered down the line which is why things keep turning up some people who presumably were kind dealers who were helping families were actually not kind dealers and were participating with the nazis in the confiscation and the laundering of these pieces so some of this is history that has come to light 40, 50, 60 years after the fact. But isn't it shocking that it is such an extensive, uh, it's such a large number of pieces? I mean, it's not uh, it's not two paintings, three paintings. 139 suspect works is, seems to me like a huge haul. Uh, that's funny because I was thinking of it as seeming a lot smaller than that. 
<laughs> well, I guess because when you're the collection treasures there. Well, well I guess when you're the curator of collections, <laughs> 139 piece is like penance. Well, when you think about the extent of their collections, also who's going to sit there and do this research? What they uh, need to do in the institutions is assign one or more people who can go back to the records and check back, check the history of the pieces that they have in their collection, check this information against lists that are only recently sometimes becoming easily available. That was actually going to be my next question, is that how does a museum, before um, acquiring an object or acquiring a piece, really authenticate its, um, its ownership before taking ownership or before purchasing that item? Because you would, you, while we have all of these paperworks, and God knows that the Nazis were really good about their paperwork, <laughs> um, not to make jokes, but it's yeah. True. Uh, right. They're, they're, they're German. They take, gr- they take great pride in their filing and in their paperwork. And their documentation. And their definitely. documentation. Absolutely. They definitely left a paper trail, as we like to say. There's, um, you have to wonder, though, about the validity of, of those papers or the, the rash, the motivation behind those papers in the first place. And what, to what extent, I guess, is my next question, to what extent is every museum in Europe, I, every is probably way too broad, but how, to what extent are museums in Europe who potentially could have looted pieces responsible for finding the true ownership? They are 100% responsible. Nobody's going to do it for them unless an heir, and the heirs are becoming older and dying off Mm. themselves, happens to remember grandma or grandpa had that piece hanging in their living room. But it's not just in Europe. It's in the United States as well. And we know that there's material in Russia. Wow. What kind of, what what pieces, I, I know that there was a Matisse found in this in this uh, group of suspect works, which is uh, for for people who are not necessarily familiar with the art world, Matisse is at least a name, a brand name, so to speak, <laughs> that everyone can identify with. But what kind of pieces were found in collections in the United States, and how did they get here? Remember, people in Germany, some of them were art dealers themselves, so they were dealing in either Renaissance art or Baroque art or contemporary art. So it could be any item that had originated anywhere in the world. It was also material, sculptures, wood, Mm. ivory carvings. There's a vast amount of material that was in Germany at the time. Were you surprised by this haul, by this admission by the Dutch Museum? Not surprised. I thought it was wonderful that they had done the work and that they were able to find pieces. They claim in at least one of the articles I read that they have already approached some of the heirs of the original owners. So that's a wonderful step. The, the responsibility goes goes that deep. What um, what happens in terms of um, the process of checking through the paperwork? How does that work? What an institution has to do is check what the information that they have. Where was this piece when? For example, uh, it might have been in Germany in 1900. Where was it in 1910? Can they find that piece? And sometimes this is very difficult. And it doesn't mean that by 1940 it was or wasn't in Germany and was or wasn't in Nazi hands. Sometimes they don't have that information. If if they're lucky, there's a stamp on the piece from one of the Nazi collection points. Ah, so I think that let's take a step back on that because that's not that's not a common piece of knowledge that that people appreciate in terms of um, just how extensive Nazis were in terms of their documentation. So when they acquired numerous pieces of art, it was everything re- received a stamp. No. By no means. Ah. Pieces that went to certain collection points did receive stamps. Okay. And just as an example of how difficult it might be to figure out what you have, I, a number of years ago, saw an early Chagall landscape that had a stamp from one of these collection points. And I thought, I'll look it up online and see what I can find. But since there weren't always photographs, of all of these pieces. Oh. I believe I came across 20 or 30 Chagall landscapes 
how do I know which one that is? Or even if this is none of them. Right. Right. Excellent point. That while there is documentation, everybody wasn't taking digital photographs. And nobody <laughs> nobody pulled out their iPhones before right. they looted. Right. <laughs> That is that is that is an excellent point. So then, how do you as um ha- how do you as an expert look and and corroborate or or verify? It's a very difficult process, and what I would do personally is find somebody who has experience with this and say, I have a couple of pieces that are a little murky between 1920 and 1950. Can you help me with this? Oh, you're turning to you're turning to colleagues. Exactly. And it's somebody who has the experience, who knows where to look in the documentation, and who probably has a better knowledge of German than I do. Do you think that there's any, we only have a minute or two left, do you think that there are any circumstance, and I mean this sincerely, that in which a family would not want their art back? If it is a very valuable piece, take this Matisse as an example, they might prefer the money. Ah, so the, because you have the burden of insuring the piece. Where are they going to hang it? What are they going to do with it? And how are they going to make, make sure that the um, environment, so to speak, in, either in their home or wherever they're hanging it, is going to be that that will um, preserve uh, right. the, the piece right. of art? Right. So there what is, if a guest raises a glass in toast and spills red wine on it? <laughs> Oh, yeah, that would be bad. What was the story um, most recently of the um, was it was it louder? Who who somebody who had a major piece of art that somehow or another there was a cut through it. You know what I'm talking about? I know what you're talking about. I don't remember the exact details. I thought somebody had done it right. in the gallery. So you call your conservators in, and you get the piece fixed. Right, and hopefully the insurance covers it. If only, if only fixing my furniture in my house for when my kids walk <laughs> around with a pen was that easy, <laughs> right? If only my house came with a conservator. That would be, that would just be a dream. Anyway, Bonnie Dara Michaels, the collections curator at the Yeshiva University Museum. Thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. Wonderful speaking to you. Bye bye. Take care. Bye bye. You're listening to That's Life here at the Nachum Siegel Network, and before you hear it tomorrow morning. On table for two, we have a little bit of an advanced view or a little bit of insight from Naomi Nachman, who joined us the other day at Kosher Fest, and I want to hear her take on it. Hello, Naomi. Hi, Miriam. Thank you so much for having me. An absolute pleasure. I'm happy that uh, you just happened to be in the studio today and that we worked it all out. So you came by while we were at the Abels and Hyman uh, booth, which was booth number 511 at Kosher Fest. We had, for those people who are not listening, and I don't know why you weren't, but that's okay, we broadcasted, we streamed, I should say, from yeah. their booth for the live lunch on Tuesday. Nahum ZK, Mark Zomik, and myself, plus Shirley Meyer, who blogged for us. Uh, I should say he tweeted for us, he Facebooked for us, he took pictures for us, Instagrammed for us all day. He was Yay. phenomenal. <laughs> he was phenomenal. And then who comes by but my little Aussie friend with her funny, funny accent? That would be you, by the way. Yeah, I figured. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I know so, they made fun of me already. So tell me about Kosher Fest. I loved it. Uh, 25 years, you know, I was, uh, you know, Saying this to a couple of my foodie friends, 25 years, I've been going for about 15 years straight. Um, and I've, I've seen an evolution of food. Okay. Um, used to be a lot of herring, smoked salmon. Mm. I did not see not one piece of herring. You right? know, uh, the truth of the matter is, is that I did not get to walk around as much as, as right, much as I were... usually do because we were working right. and I was staying near the booth. And even when we were done with the show, I wasn't making hakafos like I normally was. Right. So, um, I actually have a, um, a, a set path that I follow every year. I walk in, I go right. And you stay milchix until the last possible moment. I stay milchix, wait till I, till I hit the booth of Jack's gourmet sausages. That's it. No hold bar, <laughs> baby. Ellen and Jack, I know. Right. We, we switch back and, and Susie was there doing a little demo. So that's when Melinda Strauss and I, we walk through the festival. She's together. lovely, by the way. She's great. Yeah. I love her. Um, she's really she's great. been a guest, you know, on our, on our show. And at Gourmet Glot when you were doing your show yeah, from there. Back right. Then. Um, so we walk through the show together. I like her foodie eye. We appreciate each other's foodie tastes. Mm-hmm. Um, and we, you know, she's, she's actually been gluten free for a little while. Really? Um, a health movement, you know, that's kind of taking off a lot. Did she do it because she was diagnosed with something or she just, no, she just did it to feel, did to, it. to feel better. And okay. she, you know, she lost a little weight, which is always good. I should try it. But we kind of said no holding back today. You know what else I noticed is that, uh, and you could tell me that I'm, that I'm wrong, that it happens every year is that to me, there was a big push this year to make sure that people who attended were members of the trade. 
and that were not just visitors Schnarries. or people who right people who wanted a good kiddish. And yeah, they call it the world's biggest kiddish. I know well, because it was hashtag. It was hashtagged all over the place. But the um, but to me, they did not succeed because besides okay. the fact that Mark Zomik took a picture of what we thought was the funniest sign ever, which said excessive <laughs> sampling of products is, is uh, you know, will, will cause you to be whatever. Okay, so I had excessive sampling of the, um, he's actually one of the winners of a new product, the Premier Tasty Meats. He had this um, bean chili, tangy, smoky bean something stew. Right. I, I ate four or five of them. Actually, right now my mouth is watering thinking about it. It was outstanding. Um, and it was a guy, a guy, young guy from Dallas. Oh, Jay Blake Gladstein. The, 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 there were a lot of Midwesterners. Love it. All right, Texas I, is I, not Midwest, but you know what I mean. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, it's out there. Right. It's not in New York. Right. Right. Even I, even I get that. But it was, it was really. He, that was amazing. So excessive sampling. That was me there. And uh, Susie Fishbein at Jacks. She made this. With chorzio beef patties, some with tomato sauce. Oh, my God. I had like eight of them. There was a booth behind us, behind Abel's and Hyman, that had, like, it was Keely, you were in the shook. So they had all these barrecas, and they had this, yeah, and they had yeah. that, and whatever. And <laughs> I swear <laughs> that I thought the guy was going to be like the guy at the sushi counter in uh, at every wedding that I go to, where they look at me funny and go, dude, you can't come back anymore. So, <laughs> um, so every time I would, like, sneak in another one of those, I don't know what they're called, but there are these round... They're not even pastries. They're almost like round, circular crackers that have that have sesame seeds on them. They're thick. They almost look like wheels. I must have missed that. No, it's because I ate them all. And <laughs> I thought, and they're they're savory. They're not sweet. And I love them with hummus. And there were just a ton of them. I'm like, it's like Temptation Island over there. Mm. I was just downing one after another. You really don't know what I'm talking about. No, they're like, I. I- do you have a picture? No, because I didn't take pictures of my kill before. Okay, so I, ate. I have a lot of <laughs> I have a lot of pictures of food. But and, you know and what? Product. I did take a picture of of the turkey bacon that Abel's and Hyman is going to be importing very soon. No, that booth was really crowded. Oh, it was every crazy. time. I, I mean, Nachum was there. You Nachum were there. Was and there. People wanted to have a know, glimpse it, of Nachum Siegel. Right, I it understand. wasn't me. Let's make it clear. <laughs> it was Nachum. People wanted to get to Nachum. Um, Every time I got closer, there was, it was it was it was very crowded. Right. So um, and at one point, I found myself leaning against the meat case. I'm like, this is not where I need to be as a vegetarian. I'm yeah. gonna go back over there. <laughs> Plus, I'm blocking the display. That's not good for business. Yes. Yeah, so I unfortunately I missed that when I was leaning on the case. No, no. no oh. They oh the stuff behind it. The it stuff was behind ridiculous. It. And they were making falafels. Like they were just they were oh. lining up falafels for people. Um, uh, this is not good for yeah. me. So, yeah. So so it's really only for trade. And we had Menachem Lubinsky on my show table for two, and he was saying, you know, it's really only for trade people. I did not see it, which, you know, they usually say no one under 18. And you're right. In previous years, there were people under 18. But well, I saw, this I year, there was not. I didn't see any kids. Uh, but I, I, I have seen in the past. I, I, I don't know that I have, but I did notice that there was a – a disclaimer at the bottom of the printout when you got your pass that said there is no child care. I'm like, it's <laughs> Hello. Not an afternoon at the park. It is a trade show. Right, but right. I actually had a meeting with somebody the other day who went to Kosher Fest for the second time. He's an out of towner. Okay. He went for the second time and he is an he as he called it, he is a um uh, he's a family member. He's an extended family member of the trade, meaning he deals with Judaica and stuff, but he does not deal with kosher food. Okay. Um, and he said, he goes, it's just, he, he's like, it's such a turnoff watching everyone just scarf down this food. You know, you know what? A couple of years ago, I went over to a booth. I was must have been, you know, taking a piece of cheese or something, and I said to the lady, "Thank you." Okay. Oh, she said to me, I can, I "You're can. the first person to say that all day." That I was like me. ready to cry, and me. I, my husband and I, are very, very, very particular that our kids always say thank right. you to if you know you pick up your dry cleaning mm-hmm. or someone's giving you a Doesn't tissue. Matter. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Because right. what a busha on ourselves. Uh-huh. I mean, she was a from woman. I was a from woman. Everyone in there was pretty, you know, observant, and and no one was saying thank you. And I thought that was that really struck out at me. And that was a good few years ago. Yeah, that is that that's a harsh reality. Unfortunately, that is a harsh reality. You're listening to that's life here with Miriam Walla coming to you from the Lower East Side. Just recapping with Naomi Nachman. So Naomi, who do you got on tomorrow? I, I know have... you have a big <gasps> as well, okay. That was my ear. Um, these <laughs> Sorry, mics, I'm the squealing with these, Yeah, these mics work really well. I'll, I'll calm down. There. Yeah, you got it. As we like to say, you got a good get. 
for yeah. tomorrow. Woohoo. Okay, so I do my own like more detailed kosher fest recap and about um kosher food bloggers and about um the kosher social media event uh, kosher feast. Um but we have Gil Marks. Oh. Gil Marks is going to be in the house. He's That's huge. unbelievable. He he's I'm friends with his sister-in-law, Shari Marks, who was a guest on our show last week. We were talking about getting healthy. She's a certified health coach. Um but Gil came, is going to come in. Uh, I met him a few times and he's going to come in and we're going to talk food and the history of food. He is a wealth of information. Right. I cannot. He's an encyclopedia of kosher food. And he wrote an encyclopedia of kosher food. Literally. <laughs> he has a book that's thicker than the Encyclopedia Britannica. And he, he's going to talk to us about uh, the history of, you know, uh, the latka and the sufganiyan, just when oil, you know, started being really used in, in cooking and all that kind of stuff. So he's just, he's really an That's amazing, exciting. amazing person. And I just was, you know, That's I'm exciting. so excited to have him in. I'm like always in awe of him. He's, you know what else is exciting is, and you can, you're a prime example of this, is that how kosher foodies and kosher food experts are now celebrities. And when I was a kid, I, I maybe there were two people whose names I knew who were kosher chefs or kosher cookbook writers, and one of them was Joan Nathan. Yeah. And and not to knock Joan Nathan, call a kavod to her, she's amazing. But um, but it wasn't an industry, it wasn't right. a thing. And because I would argue in the non-kosher food industry, people. Uh, there are celebrity chefs and they trade, you know, they have trading cards the way you trade baseball cards. Right. And people are known. And you see Mario Batali. That's a huge sighting. Right. So now there's you, there's Susie, there's Jamie, there's Gil. There are all these faces who are very well known. And it really speaks to the fact that the kosher food industry, 25 years old yeah. from Kosher Fest, yeah. is very much established. And we don't take mediocrity anymore. No, no more mediocrity. We we demand bit good food, lots of it, and and just fresh food. That's what people want to see: fresh, fresh food. And this is what these people, the the, the cookbook authors, that's what they're bringing to our tables through their cookbooks. Right. The uh, by the way, with like two minutes left, I just want to ask you about the pumpkin challah you posted on Facebook. Okay. Anybody who doesn't follow Naomi on Facebook or on Instagram, I don't know what you're doing, but um, you're probably one of those people who didn't hear us from Kosher Fest the other day either. So you should definitely friend Naomi, but Thank more you. than that, she <laughs> she <laughs> she experimented. Okay, so I'm a little crazy about. I, I happen to love Thanksgiving, okay? Just because I, I came to America on Thanksgiving, it's kind of like ironic. Me and the Pilgrims, right? Came to America 22 years ago. It'll be this year. I came on Thanksgiving, and I met my husband a year later at a Thanksgiving dinner at some friends' houses on the Upper West Side. How cliche. Yeah, um, a little something. Yeah, right. So um, I've always been into Thanksgiving. Every year we get together with friends, and I always try to do um, some funky dishes. And this year it's Thanksgiving car, and everyone's a frenzy. And I'm going to be right. announcing a Manischewitz cook-off, cook, cook, not cook-off, cooking competition on my show tomorrow morning. So, awesome. Uh, I actually interview um, Avital. Avital Passar is going to. Um, There's, she's the creative director, correct? I am not sure. I she came over to me. I met. I could be wrong that that's her title. I, yeah. I, I met some of the other girls. Um, drawing a blank on their name. I'm really sorry. Um, you Courtney. Must, Courtney. Um, she's fried. the PR. You must be fried this week. I am fried. Sorry. All I, puns intended. All puns intended. Yeah. I, my brain is exhausted. You know, my husband goes, guess for Shabbos. I'm like, unless you're cooking, <laughs> guess this week. Exactly. Um, great idea, hon. Yeah, yeah. So she, she, uh, I, I am going to be playing my interview that I had at Kosher Fest with, um, Avital about their amazing, um, cooking competition they're going to have. Um, but, um, you know, I, I'm going to actually see if I can enter this, if I don't break the rules by being somewhat, prof- quote, air quotes here, professional cook. Um, but, uh, I made pumpkin challah. Right. Pumpkin challah. I just made my regular challah dough. Now everyone's going to copy me. Okay. But that's okay. I t- pumpkin challah. Yeah. I took it with my regular recipe. I use a magic mill. I took a can of puree, puree pumpkin. I sent my daughter to key food Libby's. I added most of a can in that and I cut back on some of the oil. Okay. Because, you know, and I was thinking right. in recipes, right? When Instead you want to go prune, healthy, sauce, right. you know, cut back on the oil, you can use applesauce. So I thought, okay, let's do that. So I put that in, um, and the consistency was very nice. Um, I can't give you amounts because I really don't know the right amounts. Um, but then I thought, how else can I make this more Thanksgiving-y, right? Trying to think of all the things. So um, I took the idea of making a streusel topping, right? We make that. My, I'll share my recipe for that. 
It's one cup flour, one cup sugar, half a cup of oil. And I use that on all my crumb toppings because I do not like to use margarine because I'm a little bit healthy. So that's my way of saying I'm a health nut. I don't use margarine. Um, so into that, I took mini marshmallows. I bought them in gourmet glut and I put that into the, into the crumb topping because you know, you eat marshmallows with your sweet potatoes or your butternut right. squash or your pumpkin and I put them on top, but I didn't know what was going to happen. Right. Would they burn? Sugar has a higher uh, cooking right. content, you know, high, um, higher. Uh, where's Gil now when I need him? I need to burn, ask Gil a question. Burn temperature. Yeah, yeah, burn temperature. Like oil has a different burn, burn temperature, right. so does sugar. So I didn't know how on top the sugar, whether it was going to whether it was going to car- caramelize, right. burn, be under. I didn't know. It tasted amazing, amazing. It was like a, a pillow, a sugar pillow, That's so funny. but without being like you know. Was very light. Um, and what about the challah itself? Did you? Did you? Delicious. Did so you change I, the sugar content? No, no, I did not. I used my two cups of flour for my five-pound uh, flour bag. I okay. used high gluten flour. Um, but what I did was, uh, oh, I mentioned I cut back on the oil in the can, but I put a little bit of cinnamon in okay. because you know they're the yeah, flavors. Sure. But this week I'm going to do some. I think I'm going to add a little bit of um, cinnamon and maybe some pumpkin spice mix into that. Interesting. So it was really good. Um, I, it was nice and orange. It was all that rustic Thanksgiving that. color. I want you to know that I thought that you had offset the colors with like Instagram or something until I realized, no, 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 that's the color. It, it was really right. cool and the consistency was lovely and it was very nice with hummus. Really? Yeah, lovely, lovely. Loved it. It was really good. Okay, I'm a little stunned. I would not think that that's a shidduch, but... Yeah, yeah, it was It was really good. Loved it. Really okay. good. Um, I'm trying to think of the other salatim that I had picked up. Um, yeah, sometimes I cheat. At, I usually make my own salatim, but I bought some. I get my... When I don't make my own salatim, I get them from only one place. Tomer? No, I get them from Ruti. Ruti's. Oh my gosh, yes. Can we give her a shout out? She's. I, I was there for the first time. Outrageous. Her carrot salad oh, and her. It, the matbucha, you could die. It's the oh, I'm going to have to go try. Yeah. Um, they have a very good non mayonnaise cabbage coleslaw thing. Yep. Oh my god. She's amazing. And, she, and I was there just. I had to run to my dentist. Erev, um, Shabbos. I I had like a a cut in my mouth and I need to go to the dentist because can you imagine I couldn't talk. So Gila Jedwab, the best dentist ever, <laughs> saw me right on a across the street Friday, from, Friday afternoon. Right. I parked in front of Ruthie's and I ran across to Gila. She fixed my mouth up and then I went into and she was tr- just you know, like giving me stuff to try. Yeah. She's lovely. By the way, just so that people know, one year post Sandy, people who um, survived in the five towns and whose businesses really suffered in the five towns. Ruthie was one of them. Really? Oh God, did she? Did she lost? I mean, besides the fact that she lost. Her entire stock, yeah, and all the food and everything else, and got n- got nothing back from insurance, from food, or from whatever. Um, there was tremendous damage, and you know who else had terrible damage? Yeah, was who? Central Perk was Mike. Yes, yes, terrible. I had heard that. I didn't terrible. realize. Yeah, also. but same strip. Anyway, all right, we're we're totally out of time, and I'm going to start getting dirty looks in a minute from the <laughs> engineers. So I'm going to stop. Naomi, a pleasure as always. Thank you. Thank you for the preview for tomorrow. Everyone yeah. should make sure to tune in tomorrow morning at 9 a.m. right after JM in the a.m. Nachum uh, is on from 6 to 9, and Naomi will host starting at 9 a.m. What do you want to say? Oh, I'm just going to say, we've got, remember, we've got our supersized show next week. Ah, so is that super the, 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 no, uh, November 15th. A supersize show in AHC. Supersize. I know she, Miriam does not understand my accent sometimes. Right. Okay. Supersize. Supersized. Right. Because I heard you say supersol, and that yeah, didn't no, make any gone. sense. Right. <laughs> um. Anyway, yes, we will announce that starting next week. Absolutely. Very we will talk about that then. Naomi, as always, thank you very much. Thank you. A pleasure. You've been listening to That's Life here on the Nachum Siegel Network. I'm Miriam El Thank you so much for joining me. Let's go through today's lineup so you know what not to miss. Nachum Siegel follows me right after this with a live lunch from 11 to 1. It's a live brunch, according to some, but it's a live lunch, according to us, our new slot from 11 to 1 Eastern time, followed by Sound Advice with world-renowned author and psychologist Dr. J, Dr. David J. Lieberman. That starts at 1 p.m. Co-hosted, I should say, with Nahum for the first half an hour or so, and then the doctor is in all by himself with his weekly message. It's like Frasier. Without the dripping sarcasm, it's the benefits of a couch without actually having to lie down. Stunt shows then at 2 p.m., followed by Mark Zomick's choice for album of the week. We are celebrating 10 years of Yeshiva Boys Choir, so don't miss it. And guess what? Spin class at 6 p.m. Nahum is still guest hosting as Michael is continually on the campaign trail. But don't worry, guys. It's coming down to the final, final weeks. 
and we will all be back to normal. And I'm sure everyone at the Fragan residence is looking forward to that. Charlie Bernhardt at 7 p.m. wraps up the lineup. Tune in all day long. Join Nachum tomorrow morning from 6 to 9 as he hosts JM in the AM live here on the stream and on jmtheam.org. Plus, you can get them on 91.1, 90.9, and 91.9 FM. Malcolm Holine on at 7.40. Don't miss it. And as you already got a preview, don't miss Naomi tomorrow morning at 9 a.m. Table for two with Naomi Nachman. A fascinating show. Gil Marks, you definitely do not want to miss that. Check out the entire season of programming on our website, nachamsegel.com. Click on the network schedule. I leave you today with a song which was referred to as old school. And you know what, folks? Sometimes being old school is not that bad. Here is Shir Lamelech by Yidel. I enjoy this song a lot, and I love hearing it at Smachot. And by the way, an oldie sometimes is a goodie. That's life, everybody. Bye, guys.
Oh 